You're listening to The Savings Tip Jar, hosted by Dom Beattie and Harrison Asprey. Powered by InfoChoice, your choice of financial news, guides and product comparison. G'day, g'day. Yes, you are listening to another episode of The Savings Tip Jar podcast. As always with myself, Dom Beattie, and the Sultan of Saving, Harrison Asprey. G'day, Has. That's a bit better, Sultan of Saving. Um, yeah, I was inspired the other day, you know, the Sultan of Swing song by Dice Race came on. And I was like, no, oh, the okay. Sultan of Swing, Sultan of Saving, yeah, we can make there that we work. Um, yeah, it's, uh, thanks for that compliment, Dom. And um, good to know I'm, I'm a Middle Eastern sort of overlord, um, <laughs> especially in this day I and age. Um, and yeah, we've got another good episode coming up for you guys for your ears this week so we're going to talk to our finance journalists uh, first and foremost after we do the news um, about housing affordability um, and how much income you will be required to earn if you are if you want to be considered or if you want to have an affordable home to to pay off Um, and then later on we have Kevin James from Equifax to talk to us about um, the rise in uh, default rates and and so on and so forth and how more people are turning to their credit cards and personal loans and things like that to smooth over the cost of living crisis that's hitting everyone. So, um, and once again, I I should um, also pay thanks to our sponsors, InfoChoice and savings.com.au for making this possible. So, uh, Dom, if you don't mind, um, we'll just get straight into the news. Yeah, get stuck into um, it, start the timer. Yeah, we'll, we'll start our timer here. Uh, So, savings account mania, the first news cab off the rank. So, Virgin Money actually yesterday announced it will uh, wind back on its decision to cut rates by 15 basis points. So, that was made in late October. Um, And off the back of the RBA interest rate rise in November, they've uh, axed that decision. So, the rates uh, for its boost saver account will remain at 5.05% per annum, Mm. uh, provided some criteria is met. And then Mm. if you lock your funds away for 32 days, uh, you could get 5.35%. So, um, you know, so generous, you know, uh, not passing on the rate increase, but then winding back the rate cut decision. Mm. Uh, and then in a bright spot, uh, so Australian Unity uh, has what I think is the highest unconditional rate in the market at, f- at 5.5%. Oh, yeah. um, at uh, On balances up to 50K. Uh, 5.25% applies on balances from 50K to 250K. But the main catch is, from what I read, is that as soon as you hit that 50K and $1 mark, uh, the whole balance drops to 5.25. Now, that's still the highest unconditional rate in the market. Uh, but yeah, that, imply, that applies to the whole balance. Mm. Um, so, But yeah, there's nothing to do to get that rate. Uh, and that's that's a pretty good sign out of savings account land on. Yeah, well, Australian Uni is just coming out of the blue. I mean, mm. I've never they've never actually been on my radar really for offering a competitive savings account product. But yeah, well, where has this come from? Like, what, what were they offering before? Are you aware what, what they were on? I think before? it might have been four point nine. Okay, but they were kind of in the mix there. Still kind of up there. Mm, yeah, but yeah, but huge, huge move. So obviously, you know, we're at this point where like banks are competing with each other for deposits for for funding to allow them to to lend out uh, money for home loans. So. Perhaps, you know, for whatever reason, Australian Uni just really needed uh, some some deposit uh, to help them fund their mm. home loans. So that's what banks tend to do when they're a bit sh- short on uh, on funding. They can just think, well, what's an easy way to, to raise funds? Let's offer a really competitive savings account product and um, and, and perhaps they can, we can mm. receive a fair bit of coins. So, yeah, really good to see uh, that uh, we've got another good product on offer from um, Australian Unity in this savings account market. But yeah, interesting as well what Virgin Money are doing there. Really, <laughs> instead of passing on the 25, they're saying, hey, good news. We're, uh, you know, we said we were going to cut the rate by 15 basis points. Yeah, we're just 
just not going to do that anymore. So <laughs> you get to keep your rate at uh, whatever it is now. 5.05. 5.05, yeah. Mm. Um, in some other news, uh, we've seen some data come out from PropTrack. So our journal, uh, Harry O'Sullivan, reported this one for InfoChoice, um, founding that uh, more than half of units across Australia are cheaper to buy than rent. Mm. Uh, so that was over that was 55%, and that's according to PropTrack. Uh, so the PropTrack's Market Insight report found that over a 10-year period, it would be cheaper to buy rather than rent 36% of Australian properties. So that's, um, yeah, Australian properties overall not just units um, but yeah it seems to be more so the case in units with more than half 55% estimated to be cheaper compared to 29% of houses uh, so for those for example looking to rent an apartment in Perth uh, buying might be worth uh, thinking about with 92.5% of units cheaper to buy than, than mm. it is to rent um, and the majority of, of units in Brisbane, 77.3%, and in Hobart, 63.7%, and Adelaide, 60%, are also more expensive to rent. Um, so the senior economist at PropJack, Paul Ryan, said these results suggest that there are plenty of opportunities for buyers at the moment. So, hmm. yeah, just looking across, you know, even in Sydney, uh, would you believe there are some cases where... Um, you know, for example, in Botany, 71% of homes are cheaper to buy than rent. Wow. Uh, Parramatta, 55%. Uh, in Melbourne, you've got you know Port Phillip, it's uh, 47%. But um, in the actual CBD of Melbourne, Melbourne City, uh, 83%. Mm. Um, and just looking at Brisbane, uh, just while well, I've got a little bit of time, uh, 80% in, in inner Brisbane, cheaper to buy than rent. Uh, Bean Lee, uh, just uh, sort of on the border between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, uh, 78% cheaper to buy than rent. Um, the the price of rent is kind of like a, a convenience fee, um, especially if you think of it versus buying because um, it's, a, it's a fee to avoid all the maintenance headaches and if the bathroom sink goes haywire, you know, you don't have to address it yourself and then you can move out after six to 12 months if you really want mm. it. So, um, but yeah, that it kind of just goes to show that that sort of 36% figure where it's still cheaper to buy than rent. Mm. I think that was a lot higher during COVID, obviously, because homes were potentially a little bit cheaper and rates were a lot lower as well. So um, and while rents you know, may not have uh, kept up quite at the same rate, even though it's bonkers out there for renters. Um, mm. So yeah, some interesting data there, um, especially if you're going to be transitioning into a home buyer soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for that last news piece, I should uh, just give, it's not really a news piece per se, but um, as a city customer, um, you know, a lot of people would have known that they were bought by NAB last year. Um, and now the, the phase out of city products has begun. Um, and a lot of products are being grandfathered onto the NAB platform. So for example, myself, I had a Citibank Plus account uh, for the travel benefits. So mm. uh, no foreign transaction fees and no, for, uh, no ATM fees charged by city um, if you're withdrawing money overseas, which were pretty handy features. Um, and NAB currently doesn't have a, a, a similar product, um, but now they're grandfathering that product onto a NAB everyday um, account, which is pretty noteworthy. Um, and then also some customers are reporting that they're getting a special sort of off the books savings account rate. So this isn't available to regular NAB customers, but um, if they were city customers and had a savings account rate at the time, they were earning 5.6, uh, 4.6, I should say. And then with the transition to NAB, they're now earning a 1% bonus on that. And so that's now 5.6, which would oh, be wow. one of the highest in the market. 
Um, and I think all you need to do is make a single deposit every month. So the conditions are pretty low. So for those people who were city customers with a savings account, um, you know, they're earning earning pretty pretty high interest uh, on a grandfather NAB account. Um, so there'll be a lot of uh, customers who, you know, will have their city perks uh, pried from their cold dead hands. Um, so, and but the cons are, you know, not all the perks are coming over. So I think on the Citibank Plus uh, card, you'll get a free bottle of wine mm. at some restaurants if you paid uh, with that with mm. that account. Um, that's obviously not being carried over. Um, and if you're traveling internationally too. Uh, there's yeah city there's not going to be like you're not going to be able to use their global ATM network mm. uh, worldwide so in the US for example I remember I could find a city ATM mm. in a lot of 7-Elevens um, and avoid the host ATM fee so chances are if you travel overseas with your NAB card um, even with even with these grandfathered perks you know you're still going to be charged a host ATM fee uh, mm. which could be you know three four five dollars who knows um, I remember in Vegas at the hotel at the hotel I was staying at um, the ATM wanted to charge eight American dollars um, so Jeez. which is pretty crazy <laughs> so yeah I'll, I'll, like a lot of perks there for those transitioning um, over from city to NAB products Dom um, are mm. you still a city customer Oh, you know, like a lot of uh, the, the finance forum nerds, um, I, I had the Citibank Plus card. It was the cult favorite among among everyone. Everyone knew it was just by far the best card to have uh, at the time when, when traveling overseas. And yeah, in Japan, I was really making the most of, the, of that card. Mm. Um, I think, like you said, in America with the 7-Elevens, uh, in the Japan, it's the same thing. We yeah. don't, I always knew whenever you'd find a 7-Eleven, uh, it'd be basically fee-free uh, ATM withdrawal. So yeah, definitely took it took advantage of that card. Uh, I haven't been overseas for quite a while, so I wasn't using the card as much. So I think they've actually shut it off. I, mean, I think I tried oh, you to- you had zero dollars in there. Yeah, I tried to do something with the card and it just didn't work. And I think that was because, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't used it in a long time. And I, I never took advantage of that perk with the free bottle of wine either. Yeah, so, neither. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, no, it's good to know that, um, you know, with the transition to NAB, that uh, those customers are still getting something. Um, okay, on to the next piece. Uh, we will be joined by our finance journalist, Brooke Cooper, to talk through uh, something she's covered here on housing affordability. So, yeah, let's, let's get stuck into a chat with Brooke, shall we? Let's go. All right, now just last week, uh, there was an interesting story that uh, one of our journos, Brooke Cooper, uh, wrote for Savings.com.au. And it was a report that came out saying that Aussies must earn over, wait for it, $300,000 uh, for, for, for housing to be affordable. So I don't know about you guys, but yeah, that just sounds crazy to me that apparently the, the typical Australian, um, for them to afford a house, needs to earn over 300000 you know, I must say I was quite skeptical about this, um, but uh, joining us to, to tell us more about this is the, the journalist herself, Brooke Cooper. G'day, Brooke. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so I was, as you said last week, I wrote a story based on some analysis by Suburb Trends, which is a property data and analytics business. It analysed more than 22,000 property sales from October and compared the median house price to median household incomes, which is a ratio called the median multiple. Uh, it found that Australia has a median multiple of 9.1, which means buying a typical house will cost an Aussie more than nine times their annual income. Now, internationally, a median house price that's three times a median income is typically considered affordable. And so to reach that, an Aussie household would need to be bringing in 
as he said, wait for it, $301,769 every year, according to Suburb Trends. And that's just the the national median. Uh, if we look at some of the more expensive areas to buy a house, say uh, Sydney's Northern Beaches, mm. to be considered affordable, a household would need to be bringing in an annual income of around 600000 Oh, easy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, <laughs> pocket change. And if you're buying in the inner east of Melbourne, it would take around 430000 to comfortably afford to purchase a median-priced house. Sounds pretty crazy. Um, I'd hate to, in my personal opinion, like think about when Australia was at that affordable sort of multiple around three to three and a half, probably many, many years ago. Um, but, you know, it sounds crazy, but 300 k you know, that's, that implies two income earners on 150k each, so that, that's Australia-wide. So in the in the big cities, and if you're both professionals or like a, some uh, some qualified tradies uh, doing pretty good work, uh, that sounds pretty doable. Um, and then in the Northern Beaches too, you know, the, the 600k income of affordability, that's that like people buying in there nowadays know that it's expensive there, I, I suppose, um, and they're probably on or around that anyway, or they bought in you know, 20, 30 years ago and are just living there now and reaping the, the, the rewards of that. So pretty, uh, pretty simple calculation, Brooke. Um, was there any sort of data internationally or any other regions that were less, uh, less of, a, of, of a sort of crap show in, in, in terms of, of, of unaffordability? Um, there are so there has been research that's done annually every single year on various regions across the world. Uh, basically, it found that Australia is one of the top three most unaffordable places to purchase a house, mm. up there with New Zealand and Hong Kong. Uh, Sydney itself is the second most unaffordable market uh, behind Hong Kong. Mm. Hong Kong, and this is off the top of my head, so grain of salt, plus or take fifteen percent. But um, Hong Kong, it takes an average, a median income earner 19 times their Whoa. annual salary to mm. purchase a median priced property. Uh, in Sydney, I think that's closer to about 13 times, which is still pretty massive, but not as bad. Um, so all of this piqued my interest and I jumped on the Australian Bureau of Statistics to look up some wage growth data and compare it to mm. average house price data to see how it's trended over recent years. Um, and I looked at the approximate decade between about the middle of 2012 and late 2021, and I found that the average house price in that time has risen nearly 90%, and mm. at the same time, the median weekly wage of a full-time worker has risen just over a quarter. So housing has definitely become less affordable in the recent decade. Um, that means if, you've been, if you were earning $500 a week in 2012, and your wage growth followed the same trajectory as the nation's average, you'd be earning around $640 a week 10 years later. Mm -hmm. At the same time, a house that was priced at $500,000 in 2012 was probably worth around $935,000 today. So that, that jump and that difference between rising wages and rising house prices have probably had a major impact on Australia's median multiple. Uh, and it's probably left a lot of people priced out of their local market. Um. So it's obviously been getting worse then in terms of affordability? For sure, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that's due to higher demand and uh, a lack of supply. Mm. Um, interestingly, 
Uh, suburb Trends Chief Analyst Kent Lardner noted that grants and schemes offered to help people get onto the property ladder could actually increase that supply and demand gap. So things like the upcoming Help to Buy Equity Sharing Scheme uh, or the recently doubled Queensland First Home Owner Grant probably won't actually do much to alleviate housing unaffordability. Uh, things that could help alleviate housing unaffordability, according to the Real Estate Institute of Queensland, is like land releases, simplifying our planning approvals process, training up more tradies, and freeing up the spare bedrooms of retirees. Uh, all that could increase supply and therefore weigh mm. prices down a little bit. It's easy to break Australia down into sort of eight capital city markets, if that. Um, mm. A lot of people don't even do that. They just go Melbourne and Sydney and that's it. Uh, but the fact is there's a lot of regional towns mm. and even street to street, suburb to suburb, there's different little factors going on. Um, and as our friend of the of savings.com.au says, uh, Simon Cohen from Lux Listings Australia and a previous podcast guest, um, don't quote me on the episode that he's in, uh, but he has said that um, to what you were saying earlier, mm. Dom, is that Australia is a very desirable market um, for people who want to move here, uh, mm. you know, um, and for people who want to invest here because it is a stable country uh, and that means politically, economically, generally speaking, mm. um, and also just weather-wise too. So away from, you know, the tropics of North Queensland and Darwin, you know, you, you don't get, you know, huge tornadoes that can flatten a town in three minutes like you do on Tornado Alley in, in the US and you don't get earthquakes like mm. in Christchurch that just disrupted a whole town uh, and still hasn't recovered. So uh, for the most part, yeah, Australia's um, a pretty good country to park your dollars in mm. um, in terms of property. So, But yeah, all yeah. that said, I mean, we're not trying to minimise um, no, yeah. the, the issue here that you know, about housing affordability in Australia. We do acknowledge that there is a, there is a problem there with affordability and the governments need to take action to, um, to, to to really try and, well, not so much solve it, but just kind of ease the, the problems a bit. And, and obviously we keep coming back to it. We need you know more supply. Um, governments need to lend a helping hand where possible, but without you know making the problem worse. As you know, there's always debate about whether these first homeowner grants yeah, and it, it, drive it, prices it, upwards. It sounds like you're suggesting even more first homeowner grants. That, <laughs> no, that, that, no, I'm just saying that's you know, all just, that governments can understand. With, you know, really, little helping hand. Like they know, think you, all the these grants are helping. schemes or whatnot. You know, things like that. Just mm. the, the, there is support out there, as there has been for the last you know 20 years. We've seen these. I think there's like a, gr a growing narrative change. You know, there's a lot more key sort of you know in air quotes, thought leaders and uh, people from the political class who mm. have politicians' ears that are saying like something needs to be done and people who are, you know, 50, 60 years old who would have bought when times were a lot better, they're, mm. they're saying things need to change. So mm. um, I think there's a slow narrative shift in Australia as well around uh, housing and um, helping younger people get into it. So, mm. But yeah, um, this could, I mean, we could talk about yeah. this for a whole a whole podcast, not just a podcast episode, but a podcast series on housing affordabilities. Maybe that's an idea. We, we could launch one of those in the mm. future if our investors, our backers uh, allow it. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, really, I mean, also, I just, you know, one of the last things I just want to say here, I promise, uh, is, is that these things, these markets have a tendency to sort of somewhat correct themselves. Um, you know, when you have, you know, house prices just going absolutely through the roof where the average person just really can't afford it, uh, well, who, who's, who's there going, going mm. to be willing to pay those prices? Yeah, that's, uh, that's my last thought. I don't know if you guys have any last words on this, Brooke. Oh, supply and demand, isn't it? It's our, it's our bread and butter reporting on markets. Mm. So 
watch this space as to where the supply and the demand go in the coming years and decades. Mm. And last thought, you know, it comes to a point where you just need to stop reading the news, stop reading the doom and gloom and buy what yeah. you can afford and buy when you're comfortable and buy with the intent of holding it for a, a little while. And so, try and become a surgeon that earns over $300,000 a year. Yeah, in, uh, <laughs> in, in Mossman or, you know, where Home and Away is shot. So yeah. that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Anyway, cool. yeah, thanks for that, Brooke. Uh, some yeah, good cheers, insights Brooke. there from, uh, like, delivering us some nuance into that uh, headline of 300K income. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Cheers. Cool. All right, time for our fiscal focus segment. Uh, as always, brought to you by InfoChoice, your choice of information on Australian consumer finance. Uh, this week, we're focusing on the demand for credit cards and personal loans, uh, which is actually now on the rise, according to the latest Consumer Credit Insights report from data analytics and technology company Equifax. Um, joining us to discuss this is Equifax's General Manager of Advisory Solutions, Kevin James. G'day, Kevin. Thanks for joining us on the Savings Tip Jar. Good day. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for joining us from currently uh, not so sunny Brisbane. Uh, so I guess we'll just launch into the first question. So um, as Don mentioned earlier, uh, consumers are, are attempting to smooth out the cost of living crunch with credit cards and personal loans. Uh, what are some insights you can give us there? Yeah, so I mean, what we're seeing at the moment is I, I think there's a definite smoothing and a definite balancing of the household balance sheet. You know, we've seen quarter on quarter now growth coming through in both, you know, the personal loan segment and also the credit card segment. And, and, and some of the other things that we're actually noticing as well is, you know, the credit card limits that are actually coming through are about 16% higher than what they were on the same quarter last year. So, you know, we're seeing some, some pressure coming through there. Uh, the personal loans from a, a, a limit point of view and the amount that's being borrowed is pretty much on par as last year. But I think there's a definite utilisation of the credit card coming through um, in the market now. Um, and some of that potentially could be because of the value propositions, more international travel, et cetera. But certainly the growth is showing um, that people are starting to rebalance the, the household balance sheets. Now, Kevin, we saw in the report, it showed quite a shocking decline in uh, buy now, pay later applications, which fell 27% uh, compared to the September quarter of last year. Uh, is there anything particular that's uh, driving those applications down so much? Yeah, so probably a couple of things. Um, there's been a fair consolidation of the, of the buy now, pay later market. Um, and you know some of the mergers and acquisitions that have happened. The other thing is I think there's been a, a bit of a tightening from a credit point of view on policies and changes on, on what they adopt there. So you know we've seen that not only come off this quarter, we saw come off the quarter before and you know the previous quarter. But I, I think what you are seeing as well is, is some of the move there into, you know, the credit card market and, and, the, and the personal loan markets. So we'll move now to um, the, the sort of arrears rates um, on, on credit cards and personal loans. It seems like they're increasing slightly. Um, but so far, it seems like on home loans, it's pretty benign. Um, can you see this, uh, like all the interest rate rises, cost of living crunch, can you see the arrears rates in home loans increasing? And what would happen if that sort of contagion from credit cards and um, personal loans spread to home loans? Would we see um, like default rates um, jump and things like that? Will we see like a, a GFC or can you not see that happening? 
Yeah, I mean, at the moment, you know, what we see is, is invariably what you see is your your personal loans and credit cards. I mean, normally the canary in the coal mine, right? And they tend to actually show signs of stress before what we see in the mortgage market. Uh, what we are seeing at, at the moment, at the minute is, I mean, we've seen a 19% growth um, in the number of accounts that have reached the 90-day arrear mark, so the late stage in arrears. So albeit it's coming off a very low balance i think the savings over you know the COVID period uh, i think there is some resilience um in the consumer market but i can see that you know that is definitely when you see the personal loan growth you see the credit card growth uh, starting to come through the reserves i think are starting to deplete and i think you know as we go through this festive season uh into q1 I think we might see some of the stress on the back end of Q1 um, becoming more normalised to, uh, you know, pre the pandemic times. And just having a look at some of the the, the trends uh, that and patterns that we're seeing from some of the data in the report, I was just having a look back and it looked like there was somewhat of a inverse relationship between uh, the demand for, for home loans uh, compared to the demand for, for personal loans. So I saw, you know, with... Um, with uh, yeah, personal uh, home loan demand rising, particularly with that uh, lower interest rates, it looked like the demand for personal loans was dropping quite a bit. But now, the demand for home loans is, it seems to be dropping. Personal loans seem to be coming back up. Um, is, right. Does that seem to be the case when it comes to, to credit cards and um, and personal loans that, that they move a bit differently compared to to home loans? And and is that to do all to do with interest rates? Yeah, so I think, you know, the driver and low interest rates affordability actually saw the demand for credit cards drop dramatically. So there's probably a few things there. So, you know, amortising a credit card over three years from the limit tends to put stress on the affordability for the mortgage. So you see a bit of pressure there. So we saw a a big um, demand for the closure of accounts during that period when um, we saw the mortgages going up. We're seeing that now starting to normalize and we're seeing the credit cards starting to come back. So I think what it is, is is a bit of pressure on the actual affordability uh, on the household budgets. And so when they're applying for mortgages, they tend to dispose of debt uh, that they don't need um, to gain that affordability. And I think now they're starting to come back into that market and normalize a little bit more. Now, Kevin, we saw uh, during COVID that um, savings buffers increased by quite a bit. You know, people didn't have any avenues to spend money. There's a lot of stimulus. Uh, by and large, a lot of people still kept their jobs. Um, so are these savings buffers being run down or are they still kind of cushioning the real effects of, you know, the cost of living crunch and interest rate rises? And um, and will we start to see this normalise over the next sort of six months to 12 months? So, I mean, the, the way we see it is absolutely those buffers are starting to be eroded. Um, and I think they, you know, they were built up. There was an abnormal, abnormal, you know, sort of savings that was happening over that period. And they, you know, and normally what we see is when the personal loan demand starts to rise, the credit card demand starts to rise. It's normally on the back of savings buffers starting to be depleted. So I think we can definitely see that. And I think, you know, with the savings being depleted, um, you know, we see that, you know, the, from a delinquency point of view, what we are seeing is there's a lot more stress on those who purchased homes over the last, you know, 24 months rather than those that had homes before. So I think what we are seeing here is, um, you know, depletion of savings, 
uh, and people starting to use unsecured debt um, to try and balance that household balance sheet. And Kevin, just a quick one on uh, auto loans. So uh, we've seen auto loans has come up 1.1% uh, compared to the September quarter 2022. So very small growth, So, um, but reasonably flat. But what, what, where do you see um, auto loans over the next 12 months? Do, do you see that continuing to grow slowly or do you think they'll start to drop off a bit? Yeah, Dom, I, th I think what we'll see there is we'll see it so sort of starting to stabilise now. I think, you know, what you saw there in that drop was a lot of it was a supply challenge, you know, for a long period of time waiting for new cars to come through. There was a bit of a lag there. So, you know, we saw initially used car market go really sky high and then drop off. And so I think it's starting to normalise. So I think what we will see there is a more normal sort of growth um, because it is still sitting... Um, probably at 0.3% lower than what it was pre, you know, any of the, the pandemic years. For sure. And just one last question, I, I guess we'll end on a sort of call to action for what people can do if they're feeling the cost of living crunch, you know, maybe falling behind on some items of credit. So what, what can people do? Um, and what are you seeing at Equifax with the credit scores among different demographics? So I think what we, you know, when we talk about credit scores, it's, it's a positive positive item, right? We have comprehensive credit reporting now in Australia. It contributes to your score on a monthly basis for good payment behaviours. That all flows through. I think that also in terms of comprehensive credit reporting, there's a hardship flag that doesn't impact scores. And so I think, you know, the call to action would be if you are facing into stress, talk to your lender. There are other options to, to come up with and other solutions. And I think those have certainly broadened, you know, strongly over the last 18 months. But I would, I'd recommend speaking to your lenders because there are options and there are different things to, um, to ensure that you uh, look after your scores. It definitely sounds like a good first port of call there if you're struggling with your, your credit report and your credit score. Uh, Kevin James, really appreciate your time here on this Savings Tip Jar. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for your insights. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Thanks, Kevin. All right, and that was Kevin James, Equifax's General Manager of Advisory and Solutions. And that brings us to the end, Harrison, of another episode of the Savings Tip Jar. Indeed, yeah. Thanks to our King of Queens, uh, Kevin James there. And yeah, another great episode in the bag with some uh, great insights in the news and um, from Brooke as well. So yeah, thanks. And thanks to you, Dom, as, as always, for sharing oh, your cheers, time with me. Cheers, thanks, Harrison. Mm. Uh, and of course, thanks to our loyal listeners. Um, be sure to like and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have any thoughts to share, shoot us a note to inquiries at savings.com.au. That's inquiries with an E, Harrison. With an E. With an E. Or if it's easier, just via our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, be sure to tune in next week. We'll have some great more... Uh, finance and savings chats for Some your great more listeners. finance chats <laughs> that's it there we go that's it alright thanks bye bye